Welcome to a, another edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Koval, and this is the bodega version. Uh, in Chicago, we have corner stores. We don't have bodegas, so this is the yeah. bodega version. Uh, we are recording in uh, Brooklyn, New York, with a Bronx icon, uh, someone who has stewarded, shepherded the culture of hip-hop uh, since really its onset, um, someone who's continuously and tirelessly put on for the culture in Puerto Rico, both as uh, an ambassador of both spaces and, and done a lot of work, uh, you know, for 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 us all, really. Uh, Crazy Legs is in the corner store. Welcome, man. Thanks for Thank being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. We have some snacks for you out the gate. We like to make sure our guests are situated. We have some onion-flavored rings, Funyuns. a.k.a. Funyuns, Funyuns. Uh, for you. Um, Healthy-Aid uh, pomegranate kombucha. I don't, I don't know. Okay, I that's, that's what's up. I like pomegranate. And these nuts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, a berry nut, nutty mix, these nuts. Um Respectfully. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, no, appreciate you being here. Oh, um, good. And, and yeah, I was happy to, to for you to come out the other night at the Apple Store and, and uh, introduce us to a crew of young people. And I want to kind of talk about all the education and, and mentorship work you've done. But a thought I had today was, you know, for so many of us, you appeared... Um, especially folks outside of New York, you appeared on the screen as one of the first embodiments of of a culture that we didn't know anything about and we're mm-hmm. just getting a, a, a sneak peek of. You were, you know, in some ways, like the first face for uh, what was to come. I, and I, I want to maybe talk about that, but I, I'm curious about the folks who influenced you to even get to that point where you then were doing what you were doing who who influenced you to to you know even as a young young man to get young man I was a kid I was only right. 10 years yeah. old when I started so my influence was my uh my cousin Lenny Len who wasn't really my cousin but you know we all plus a Puerto Rican thing uh, his mom was the godmother of my my brother so when they lived upstairs so automatically you become cousins so that's it and uh, he uh, brought me he had moved out from upstairs and then went to a jam and you know he was hanging out in these, these this area in the uh, Crotona Avenue section of the Bronx and he was just like yo you're rich you gotta come to the jam I was like what the jam and he would tell me about graffiti and all these other things and and I actually had seen Breaking uh, the year before that in 76 so when I first when he first brought me to the jam and I saw Breaking I was just blown away because I originally saw it with uh, my brother just throwing down with Africa Islam in front of where we lived in the Bronx and I was just like embarrassed to be watching my brother throw himself on the floor. Oh, you and thought it was, I was, it was disrespectful? I was, I was, no, not disrespectful. It was just embarrassing. You know, I mean, it, he uh, was on the floor. There was no music playing. Him and Africa Islam, DJ Africa Islam were, play, were comparing moves and I kind of put my, my head down in shame for him and my family but um, you know I ended up going to a jam a year later and I was a little shy kid so when I went to this jam that shit just opened up my whole world and I got hyped I tried to dance my gear was bummy my, my, there was no idea of freshness for me back then cause poor you know yeah. living in a hood uh, no access to resources so you know I just fell in love with with this it wasn't even just about the breaking. 
because for me it was about all these elements that I was witnessing at the same time and to witness um, something that opened me up you know to kind of my, my, my first form of expression that didn't require funds you know other than, you know because for me for you know it was boxing baseball and then now you know breaking right so I don't know if it was just a B thing or something like that Bronx baseball boxing <laughs> breaking uh, but uh, I just fell in love with it started uh, practicing and going to as many jams as I could at a young age and like six months later I started teaching my cousin so I was like advancing in a really fast way my, my moves were evolving and it just got to a point where all I wanted to do is battle and practice and write graffiti and listen to uh, tapes by the Code Crush Fantastic Five Furious Five uh, you know learn all those lyrics that they were spitting going to jams and mind you this is it wasn't yeah what years it was, what years are we talking 77, 78, okay. 79 and how old are you uh, at 10, that time 11, 12 right so I'm not I'm not even uh, there's well first of all there's no such thing yet as hip-hop culture as the name. It did, you know, because it wasn't called hip-hop culture until 82. Right. So at that so, time, when you were going to the jams, like, what, they, they... Yo, you break. Yo, you write. Yo, you DJ. Right. You, you rap. You, I mean, you no, not rap. It would be like, yo, you MC. You right. MC. So that was that's how you are you are identified by your element. But most people... No, nah, nah, let me not say most people because there was no... Directive, like there was no protocol, like oh, you have to be involved with all these elements. It's just you know, just like Skellies and Hopscotch and uh, uh, Double Dutch and Johnny Ride the Pony. It was just one of our ghetto games. All those things were part of our ghetto games. So there was no prerequisite, uh, no no set intention with any goals in mind for any agenda other than battling, having fun, partying. Uh, so it's, it's crazy when people talk about oh yo hip hop wasn't about that back then it's like what the fuck are you talking about there was no agenda there was no leader in terms of a direction of a movement hip hop didn't even have a name for nine years so when people get all self righteous about what it used to be or what it was meant to be from the beginning it's like you know, and then you know to also try to define it as one person creating it. Yeah, it's just like if you just do the math and, and uh, uh, geography and basic common sense, you would realize none of that shit is true. It would be impossible for one person to be a father of hip hop. It's like, all right, well, show me the pieces he did with Futura, Chain Three, uh, Phase Two, and all of them. Where are those? Where are those canvases? Where are those walls? Where are those trains? Right. All right, well, uh, show me this person cutting up like Theodore. Does that exist? No. Show me that person mixing on beat. That doesn't exist. Show me video of this dude even dancing in a cypher, breaking, like really getting down. That doesn't exist. Has that been, has that been one of the frustrations as hip-hop gets talked sometimes or? it's my frustration I don't think it's hip hop's frustration because hip hop loves an easy to swallow story uh, and, and it doesn't really cross reference itself 
everyone wants to go along with this happy-go-lucky story like if oh oh hip-hop was about you know peace unity love and having fun no that was a zulu nation principle uh, that was impl- right. uh, that was imposed later on by africa bambata right you know cool but but came later but i mean shit i grew up around stick-up kids that were dope b-boys right well, and is, I, is I mean so crew, like, crews come from street organizations don't i mean no even, even, no 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 i mean crews come from people who are like yo pff, your shit is dope my shit is dope let's make a crew we go smoke everybody sometimes it started off as a duo a duo ended up into being a you know a threesome or a foursome or whatever, and then mm-hmm. a bigger crew, and then everyone wants to be down with the dope shit or be down with something that makes them feel protected. Yeah. So, like, I mean, there are people who were outlaw gang members who knew how to up rock, and some of them knew how to break. But I think uh, to to romanticize it and make it seem as if all the gang people became b-boys and b-girls is bullshit because I remember when we used to hang around the chinglings and uh, my cousin was in Rockwell Association at the time and Rockwell Association would have beef with the chinglings which is an outlaw gang because the younger kids were were basically fucking with the b-boys like you know pestering them and bothering them and then Next thing you know, one day there's a big ass fight in Belmont Park in the Bronx. Everyone's having a one on one, taking turns to settle this beef. But um, but it's, but that was the younger kids cause, because at the at the end of the day, the Chinglings were 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 also the same people who would uh, use the DJs from Rockwell Association to DJ their block parties and mm-hmm. stuff. So you know, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I didn't experience. Any gang member become a dope b boy. I don't know one that that you can say was a savage gold member or whatever that who became an like an ill MC DJ or whatever. So when people start talking about these things, it's that it's all romanticized. Right. But with, like when you cross reference, there's a lot. Of, it's like oh, that shit is kind of bullshit. N- not even uh, Bam. Um. I mean, Bam. Did he ever cut? Was he ever a good mixologist? Bam played dope records. Yeah, Bam was inspired by Cool Hurt because Bam heard Hurt playing records that Bam said, "Oh wow, I got those records and I have more." Right, and that's and, and that's quoting him. Right, you know this isn't my idea of what Bam thought, but Bam told me he said he had those records and he had more than that. That's why his nickname was the Master of Records. records yeah. but Bam wasn't known for being a, a dope. Yeah, DJ in the sense yeah. of the technical aspect. Jay, he always right, had or, uh, Jazzy J and Red Alert. Yeah, yeah. You know, but he so, was, but he was involved in street organizations he, prior. Yeah, to, he, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and from that aspect of it, yeah, maybe yeah, some of his people who were into being an outlaw gang, yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, which ones were actually? I mean, very few you could point at. Like it became dope b boys and dope MCs. Very few, right? You know, so uh, so for you, the, those early jams. What was what was some of the reasons why you kept coming back to the to the jam? I wanted to battle. I wanted to peek at the DJ's records. I wanted to see what the names of the songs were, but you couldn't because you couldn't get behind the ropes or you, they they you know scraped off their labels from their records. So, you know, I I just had fun. That was that was my. 
my 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 activity you know that was my my social activity right and where your folks involved at this point i mean involved i mean in the sense like did they know that you were you know dancing or beginning to dance at these jams yeah yeah um my my parents weren't together um but uh, everyone everyone knew i was dancing no one discouraged me the only people who discouraged me were like girls that moms that i dated yeah, you know. Meanwhile, six passports later, ha ha ha. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, it worked out for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what what did your I guess what what did your what did your folks do or um, you know when when you were coming up? What did your mom? My father do? was a machinist, uh-huh. um, but my father wasn't really around for us like that. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't grow up with a father figure like that. Mm-hmm. My mom was struggling, welfare, working bullshit jobs. You know, typical ghetto life. Yeah, and so, she, but she was supportive of you, of you yeah, yeah. pursuing. I, I didn't come across anyone in my family who was like against me dancing. Yeah. I mean, I, I come from a culture of of arts, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, so it's just adding on to it. Yeah, um, you were. It sounds like kind of an all-around artist. I mean, you because you not only danced, but you did other aspects. Of I, the- I mean, everyone would. Tr- Everyone, anyone who was in the hood back then was trying everything. You try to MC, you wrote rhymes, you stole rhymes. You Were you nice you as an MC? Was I nice? No, I was whack. <laughs> Not at all. I wasn't even close to nice. <laughs> did you Did you have an MC name? Or? No. Okay. No, yeah. No. Um, you know, when my brothers would uh, leave the house, I would, you know, my three older brothers were DJs, so, mm. but they were like master mix DJs, you know, they were disco DJs, they actually knew how to mix, I mean, you know, like, and they mixed records that were created offbeat, mm. so that was very difficult, that's why a lot of the DJs who are on like 92KTU back in the days were called master mixers, because mm. couldn't be, you know, going up there and just playing a horse race, you know? So that's what we used to call it when you all the beats would be like or it wasn't on beat. Like yo, what's up with that horse race? It sounded like a bunch of horses running. But um, um, I would try to. I would always sneak when my brother would leave the crib and jump on the turntables and practice. Try and, and then until one day they switched the wires around and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Uh, that just deaded my career at that point. I mean, I, I rock out not right now, mm. and, and I DJ. But back then, they would they figured out that I was just basically um, turning on the system, sneaky style, until they caught me. Were your brothers? Did your brothers uh, go to the jams? Did they get involved no, in in no. what would my become hip hop? My oldest brother was a b boy, but that was short lived. He was part, he was part of the organization, which eventually became Zulu Nation. But um, my other two brothers, nah, they were just straight into disco. Mm-hmm. And was there music. was there tension between disco and what was happening in the parks at, at some point? What do you mean? Um, in terms of lifestyle, aesthetically, sonically, was there? No, I mean, we felt like, me personally, my perspective was, I didn't really care for disco at the time, although I have an appreciation, appreciation for it now. But uh, it was just, you know, boom, 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 boom. It was on the 4-4. Everything was on the 4-4, but it was just one consistent, you know. And and I wasn't really ready to listen to the nuances of those songs either because I was into hip-hop, you know. I was listening to James Brown, the Incredible Bongo Band, 
uh, T Connection, you know. And then, but then again, there were songs that were, that were, let's say, by, um, oh God, Vicky Sue Robinson, Turn the Beat Around. That was played at hip hop jams and disco parties. Mm-hmm. There was uh, the greatest, uh, greatest DJ. Um, that was also played in both. So I didn't understand disco soul at the time. Right. That was also played at hip hop jams. And but then you also had rock music, like whether it be ACDC, Back in Black, that was used at hip hop jams. And but meanwhile, we were like fuck rock, but we didn't even realize that was a rock song. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there was a lot, a lot of rock, jazz, whether it be. Um, Oh, what's his name? Uh, I can't even think of his name now. Bob James. Nice. Oh, yeah. Nautilus. Yeah. So many. Yeah. 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 People so, sampled that also. So we were, I mean, when you think about it, we probably, hip hop was probably the most unwittingly <laughs> diverse ear in hip hop, in, in, in music, because. DJs were finding all these different beats from different genres of music and bringing it into that scene. Yeah, yeah. But then they were still playing disco, and we didn't even realize, oh, that shit. You know, just because Charlie Chase played it, it just made it cool. You know, yeah. if my brother would have played it, I would have been like. Eh, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Um, well, that, I mean, that's one of the things I love about hip hop is that it it put me on to all these other musics, and in part because it's comprised of all these other musics, and and like you said, it's kind of a uh, it's a poor people's art using what's around you to yeah. create, making the best of it out of a bad situation, you know. Right. Um, how did you uh, how did you then find begin to find your people in 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 the culture? I wanted a battle. I just ran. If I heard, I, I hung out with the B boys and B girls and MCs and DJs. Where I was just going to jams. I was, I was a, a, a concrete soldier, you know. And that's and that's what it was. I, I was. I'll walk miles just to go to a jam. I'll hop a, hop on the back of a bus and, and take that a few stops to get somewhere. Yeah, I remember what. Although the Bronx isn't that big, when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. Going twenty blocks away from home, it's you, a big you, deal. Yeah. yeah, it's a big deal, and an ass whipping waiting for you. You know, ass whipping waiting as soon as you get home. So, you know, it wasn't that easy for us. You know, so. yeah, I I heard you mention maybe um, because when you're dancing at this point, you're dancing. Yeah, we love we love sound effects. We love sound effects. Uh, you're dancing on. Concrete in the park. Mm, concrete um, in the park jams. Uh, cement floors in basements. Um, gymnasium. Uh, gymnasium ranks. floors when you had the opportunity to do that, or community center. Right. Tenement hallway buildings, you know, um, and those are like uh, what do you call it uh, marble floors. Right. Is it? Uh, is but it a- the street? No, right. I hate being called a street dancer. You know, that's like to me, the street is where the cars are. Right. A sidewalk isn't the street. It's a sidewalk. Right. You know, I, I always feel like people uh, use the word street, and, and to me, it's almost like a derogatory term because um, it's not looked upon the way ballet was. But ballet was formed in the courts. Mm-hmm. You know, which was streets also. 
So why isn't ballet called street? Why well, yeah. is it because this came from people of color, it has to be called street? Yeah, well, I think we know why, right? Because of the insidious nature Your of racism. People. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing about, about whiteness is that pejorative lens and it kind of sees all these other art forms for, even though now, you know, we see in contemporary art in contemporary dance that they're incorporating so many styles and techniques that folks like you have helped to innovate mm -hmm. you know well um, at the same time you have to give props to people like um, uh, Henry Chow Fun yeah. yeah you know um, <clears throat> people like Seen uh, from NPC crew mm -hmm. Rose Park crew uh, you know there are people who are uh, documentarians and Practitioners of the arts. Mr. Freeze from Rocksteady. He was a uh, French-born b-boy. Started, you know, moved to the Bronx. Family was in concentration camps back back in the days, and they moved over here, and he ended up becoming a b-boy. Yeah. And going on, you know, taking what was considered black and Latino culture around the world. No, he was he was one of my heroes because he was a white dude in the mix, yeah. and I was like, oh shit, mm -hmm. okay, because it seems like if you had the skills to participate, anyone could essentially get down. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it myth that you kind of brought the cardboard into the park? Or is no, it's a fact. We oh. did that. Okay. That was the rock study thing because, um, and I couldn't tell you who did it first or who was the first person in, in rock study, but rock study park. Uh, adjacent to Rock City Park was which is where 98th Street in Amsterdam mm -hmm. um, it was adjacent to a, uh, an appliance store appliances come in big boxes they would throw those in the alley we would climb over the fence grab them you know get some duct tape or whatever kind of tape we could afford uh, try to put them together or just break up one big box and that was it and that was you know because all oh, the thing is because we um, we practice in the back of the park on this black mat under the swings which gets dirty it's that black rubber mm. and which especially in the summer it starts to get brittle as it, the heat keeps hitting it and you dirties your clothes and that, shoes yeah. you know so we were you know two things you try to stay as clean as possible but you also could pra practice your spins as well mm. And then, so that's pretty amazing, right? That because that's again like kind of utilizing what's around you to make yeah, yeah. this culture. That's um, pretty good. When when did the rock study begin to formulate in your head? I mean, when, when did it come about? Rock study was formed by Jimmy D and Jimmy Lee in the Bronx, 1977, on or about because no one really documented shit back then. Um, and it happened around Echo Park in the Bronx. They were part of another crew and then started an up, you know, started their own crew. And it was given to me in '81. What did you have to do to get in? I was given my own chapter, and I just had I ended up just having like the illest, biggest chapter. And the only other crew bigger than us at the time was probably Zulu Nation. That at one point. Me and Frosty Freeze counted about 500 people, and that was in like maybe 1982. Wow. Sat down and put a list together of all of our members in Bronx, Manhattan, Staten Island. And this is like 
B-boys, B-girls, roller skaters, graffiti writers, DJs, MCs, whatever. We were a full-on hip-hop crew. And we counted about 500 people. Definitely 500, at least. I'm not going to say 600, but, you know, I know I'll never forget that 500. We did cross the threshold of 500. Yeah. But this has been a lifelong uh, family for you. I mean, this is something that you, even to this day, are a part of. Yeah. Um... I mean, you know, um, Rocksteady is, I mean, we're, we're pretty fortunate to have been, I mean, we weren't there at the very beginning, beginning. I mean, what, we missed it by three years. But at the same time, myself and my cousin Lenny Lamb, we were the uh, probably one of the last of the original B-Boy generation to get down with breaking. Um, and... You know, we, we also, as that was fading out, Rocksteady, because of what we were doing as a crew in terms of battling or teaching, bringing on new members, those members falling off and forming other crews, you know, it got to a point where, you know, shit like that would happen. Be like, yo, legs, but they, they yo, fuck them, they, they, they're going to they gonna join another crew, whatever. And... and, and and I'd be like, yo, but that means there's more for us to battle. Right. Don't worry about it. It's all good. It's good for the scene. And the crazy thing is that I'm, as much as I didn't rationalize the direction of hip-hop or anything like that, I did rationalize the idea of a scene growing because the scene was already pretty much dead by 79. Hmm. So, but we, we just... We kept it alive. We we were the spark that kept it alive. We, but I don't believe people keep things alive by themselves because you can't be dope if you don't have competition. Right. So we had to smoke someone. Yeah. And, and you know, people watching that, then they form their crews because they want to get a piece of the action or, or get sweated by some girls or get a pat on the back, as Wiggles would say, by by the by the local drug dealer. <laughs> Why was the culture falling off around 79? What it wasn't the culture, just breaking. Just breaking. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I guess it's gone I mean, through ebbs I mean, and flows like anything. You, you, you got to think about it. It's kids from the hood with no resources. It's not like there was a, a, a lane for us to have a Broadway career or a music video career or a choreography career. Mm-hmm. We were in the hood. The only opportunities for people in dance back then was if you were a jazz dancer, a tap dancer, or a ballet dancer. You know, maybe ballroom dancing at some point. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Breaking, hip-hop related stuff, nothing at all. Yeah. Uh, obviously, so, that's changed. And, but and, you also have to but, remember, the, reti- well, the retirement age for a b-boy back then was about 16, 17. Right. So now, people are getting in at like 15, 16. Right. So... Um, it was not too long after that moment where, uh, and I, I forget what came first, but where you and and Rocksteady popped up in not only Flashdance, um, eighty three, eighty three, and then Style War. You mentioned Henry Henry Chalfant. We uh, filmed Style Wars before um, Flashdance. Yeah, but it came out after. maybe yeah after yeah. eighty four mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, those were. You know, pretty big moments for the planet mm-hmm. to see what was happening 
here in New York. I mean, I'm a Chicago kid, and it was the first time that I'd really I, seen I, it. Yeah, I was actually on tour in 81. How? I was in Chicago, Chicago in 81. Um, with the, uh, it, was, uh, it was called the, um, the Kitchen Tour. Because oh. the first show we did was with Harry Chalfon. He curated a show at the Kitchen Center for Performing Arts. And that led to um, that led to a tour, a, a twelve city tour between East Coast, Midwest, and Toronto. So that was actually the first time we took it on the road and were physically somewhere else, and, and, and just and it wasn't a hip hop tour. It was kind of like a what's happening in New York kind of tour. So it was rock, punk, comedian. Us, you know, it was actually me, Frosty Freeze, Fat Five Freddy, and this guy, DJ Spy from Brooklyn. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I know this through being told it, but uh, I, you know, there was a, uh, a writer and a b-boy named Nick Salsa who came to Chicago in like 79 or 80 and kind of brought New York style writing and also b-boying to mm-hmm. Chicago, to the north side of Chicago, to a spot called Logan really? Square. I've never heard You sure? Nick Salsa Yeah 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 79? 79 uh, It might be 80 Might be yeah, 81 cause I, that, but, that was, Yeah Yeah Because yeah. I, I, when I was there There was nothing like it People didn't know what we were doing They didn't understand Our hats turned to the side You know I got stepped to Like yo why are you wearing Your hats to the side Well right That's some Chicago shit I was yeah. like I don't even know What you're talking about Right Right Yeah it's like, the mores The local What gang you wear I'm like I'm not with that gang shit bro What are you talking about Right Yeah yeah I mean we kept it moving But Yeah Nothing happened but that was just a difference between, you know, lifestyles in the city and cultures and gang yeah. activity. Yeah, each local uh, has its own. Yeah, like in New York, it would have been about beads. Like, ooh, he would have been, had he would have, had he would have noticed that I had Zulu beads on or something, that would have been a more appropriate question. Right. Like, what gang you represent with those beads? I would have been like, I'm not really a gang, but, you know, I'm in Zulu Nation or something like that. Yeah. Which I'm no longer a part of, but right. um, you know, there, there was a. I think a, a lot of times when we start talking about history, we really have to start cross-referencing properly because there's so much information out there now. I sometimes I just cross-reference what school I was in during a certain year to figure out the year that I was in a certain area because mm. I don't want to get that wrong. True. Um, all of a sudden, you become a young teenage ambassador. Ghetto celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> um, that must be, I mean, of course, there's no training for that. Nope. Uh, but that must be a different... I mean, well, there is a training for that. because You mean the, the celebrity aspect? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but what, what were you going to say? Because we were wilding out. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're right. I mean, like any young, like any teenage kid on any the kid road. Any kid from the hood. On the road, if you're not like sheltered by your parents, and, and they're not letting you hang out with all the thugs in the, in the street and all that shit, you know you're just wilding out. Because I know people who grew up in the hood who uh, uh, did great things in their lives, went out to great, uh, you know, get a great education, great universities, and things like that. But they were also a lot of those people were sheltered, you know, and protected from their surroundings. So what's some of the stuff that you had to learn on the road pretty quickly to maintain? Hmm. Learn on the road? I think my first years of traveling, I didn't learn shit. I mean, think about it. You go into a city and the first thing you... You know, the, the, the promoters want to take you to see um, 
the Eiffel Tower and you're like, yo, take us to the hood. And we're like, fuck all that Eiffel Tower shit. We don't want to fucking do that. Like, yeah. we, don't, we can't even relate to those people that are going there. We just wanted to go find out where the hood was, where we can get some like some blackberry brandy or some shit like that and some weed. Yeah. That was the agenda. And then we had a show. We performed. We didn't give a fuck whether they liked us or not. We were dancing for ourselves. And because we looked at each other in, in a way that we wanted the respect of each other as crewmates, we always would finish and be like, yo, how was this move? Or we'd be like, yo, that shit, that was dope. That was amazing. Yo, do that again. How do you do that? Uh, and then you'd be like, I don't know, man. I was... I was just, you know, I was just doing my thing, and it happened. What did I do? <laughs> you know, so, but because we were dancing for each other, that meant that there was intensity because we were our, each other's critics. So whatever the, the audience ended up liking it, it's, we, it's not like we ever got booed. Yeah, well, it seems like the audience yeah. remained liking it for... And, uh, and I think there was a lot more drugs during that era, so maybe they were just having a good time watching. Like, oh, shit, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? But it, but it was also something I think people had, you know, never really seen at that point. I mean, you know, obviously there's a lineage you could trace in terms of how b-boying emerges, mm -hmm. but at that time, I mean, I remember no. as a young person just being taken with you know, what... I mean, I wanted to... Six step and spin on my back and all of but this. But they were hearing about us because of certain uh, magazine trade publications that were covering what was happening in New York, uh, in the downtown scene with uh, uh, like Dan Soteria, The Grill, The Roxy, Mud Club, uh, uh, Fun Gallery, uh, Things mm -hmm. in the Bronx, Broadway International, Bonds International, I mean, Broadway 96, Bonds International, Fun House. So people were hearing about those things. So when they came out enthusiastic, and um, maybe what they read would seem cool. Yeah. And, it, and then that was also the area of the, the period of transitioning out of disco. In Chicago, we had House. And so, you know, mm -hmm. how, you know House started to um, take over for a lot of us. And then ultimately, there was some crossover between uh, yeah, what DJs were Yeah, but even with House back then, there was a lot of soul music. A lot of soul. No, a lot of my brother's soul DJ, music. My, yeah, my absolutely. brother's a DJ. And, Playing that stuff too. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, um, you know, yeah, you had a lot of house music that was made in Philly, right? As well, Chicago. Yeah. Um, I didn't identify it as house music because I didn't know. It's like people kind of like, I mean, I didn't grow up around it. I was mad young, so I, I wasn't sitting there like, oh, house music. And I wasn't like a music head like that. Yeah. Just only what I liked, and that was it. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, my brothers were playing it right in front of me, and I just didn't know. And my brother was one of the top DJs on, a, on the radio in New York. So I mean, my brother was actually... What's, what's his name? David Cologne. It? But uh, they, they had, there was a uh, battle of the DJs in New York. It was on 92K2U, uh, Jelly Bean, Jose Animal Diaz, Chef Pettibone. All the top DJs in New York that were on the radio were in this battle. Aldo Marin... And uh, my brother ends up in the semifinals battling Jellybean. And he beats Jellybean because I had given him, well, because of his talent. But my brother was the only DJ to have a copy of Planet Rock because I had, there were three copies out at the time. Tommy Boy had one, Bambada had one, and I had one. Wow. And it was acetate. So wow. you couldn't play it that many times anyway. And I gave it to my brother and he used it against Jellybean, mixing it with Trans Europe Express and all that stuff. And uh, he won against Jellybean. Made it to the finals. 
He didn't submit his his reel to reel in because that's how they did it back then. Uh, in time for the finals, and then Aldo took his place wow. and, and battled someone else. I forgot who. Wow. Yeah. Dang. That's uh, only. So it's crazy because yeah. I'm over here hating on Disco. Then I hope my brother win the battle. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, that's amazing that there were three copies of Planet Rock at that time. And you, ha- how did you, how did you come? Up, Bam gave it, one? Gave it okay. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, it, was so, a, it was a white label just written Planet Rock. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, you, you've had a, a, a long career in this, and there's, there's a lot of ground to cover. Um, you, you know, from, from taking it on the road, I mean, did you, did you see yourself as an ambassador for b-boying for new york for i don't uh, set out to be an ambassador sure. i mean people want to see me that way because of my actions i mean shit i'm an asshole too yeah <laughs> you know but um I, i'm i think i'm a i'm probably one of the most dysfunctional people who just still sets out to do good things anyway you know i think everyone has uh the dysfunctionalities but there are just some people who want to do good things because they have the ability to do it and not because of press, but just because it's necessary. I also know how I grew up, and I know what led to my dysfunctionalities in terms of a dysfunctional home, being an at-risk child, domestic violence, all kinds of shit like that. Being on welfare and, and you know doing my own bit of crime and having certain uh, street code ways that... I think once you have certain street code ways that are always going to interfere with your life and you're never going to live like a normal, what's considered a normal life, but then again, your ghetto instincts are amazing and you can smell the bullshit a mile away, you know? Uh, so um, it, it, it's, it's good and bad, but, um, you know, I've gotten to a point where, you know, I've done a lot of work community-wise. Uh, you know, you can only watch so many people die around you before you realize, oh, shit, like, what I have as a talent and my ability to reel in other people with different talents can be used as a tool to help people. So at one point, I started doing volunteer work for uh, three years straight, three days, in a, three days a week, teaching and throwing events in the, in the South Bronx. I purposely chose the worst neighborhood at that time. Uh, to uh, in the in the country, and uh, when I did that, that that led to again the revival of breaking, you know, which was which, I mean. And what years is this? That oh, early, early nineties. Okay, yeah. ninety one. Right. Yeah. And um, did you I, ever see yourself as a teacher prior to that moment? Or no, nah, not at all. Okay, not at all. And you know, you have to learn how to. Uh, teach a structured class and understand kind of have to, you know you, you realize that your foundation is pretty dope you know and, and because there were very few moves back then we had to develop our foundation in, in an ambidextrous style so it creates the illusion of having more moves because you could transition into different directions mm. so that was really helpful with helping lefties and righties uh, and mm-hmm. also teaching them how to make it appear as if they're doing more than what they actually did. They're just doubling up, you know. So um, it's like being able to dribble dope left, lefty or right. Yeah, you switch one way, you yeah, go yeah. another people way. People think you're like outrageous. Yeah. You're doing the same thing on both, both sides. sides. Yeah. But the tra- to be able to transition is the trick. Mm. 
you know, and then stay, you know, consistent with it and fluid. But uh, um, as far as being an, an ambassador, uh, I think I do my part where I can, and I, I whether it's leading or not well, taking on an initiative like wanting to help people in Puerto Rico uh, with water filtration systems, solar lights and things like that after the hurricane to doing volunteer work, to throwing events and doing food drives, uh, clothing drives, um, fundraisers for different people. And, 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 you know, that I think you, you live and you learn and you just feel like I'm going to help that person. You know, yeah, and there are people you just don't care to help at all. Sure, but yeah, because you've recently helped been helping yeah. Puerto Rico, but you, yeah, I'm actually trying to like the Red Bull, uh, Red Bull BC One World Finals is coming up on the weekend of, uh, let me see, I think it's November eighth or ninth, okay, in in Mumbai, India. Mm. So I figured, all right, they didn't tell me if if I'm working out there. You know, they're bringing me out there. I thought it was just a hangout. I found out today that I'll be working also. And what does that mean? Does that mean working, judging? Does that judging. Mean, yeah. yeah, judging. Yeah. So what I did prior to finding that out, I reached out to Red Bull last week, and I was like, hey, you know, I've, I have these abilities. We're going into an area that has a water crisis. I know how to help people to have access to clean water within seconds or, or convert their water within seconds into clean, drinkable water. And, and, you know, I would like to bring those abilities to India and go into the hood or go into a community center or maybe link up with a person who's a, a, a community leader and just use these abilities I've learned because of Red Bull and working with a company called Waves for Water and, and pass that on and, and bring some water filtration systems out there mm. and try to, you know, Save lives because at the end of the day, somebody's constantly drinking bad water. You're gonna die. Yeah. And, and what did they say, by the way? To we're making it happen. We're already doing the, the legwork to make that happen. So um, actually, I, before I got here, I was on a on a phone call with a range, just organizing that. That's very dope. with Red Bull. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, because you've been doing a lot of humanitarian work, and, and it seems like more and more as. I don't, you know. Yeah, I, and it's not like I set out to be a humanitarian. It's like I said before. I just yeah, you care. I about see it as people. necessary. It's yeah. necessary. Yeah. You know, I even have a problem with. I don't even like taking a write off if I donate money or, or do get donate stuff and do time. I, I you know do time work on working on doing something. I, I for whatever reason I don't like writing that off because I feel like if I really wanted to do it I would just do it anyway. You know. I mean, it's probably dumb of me anyway, but <laughs> not financially smart, but I know I'm not doing it for the write-off. Right, yeah. Um, I, I want to talk a little about some technicalities in b-boying and, and also how the, the form has developed over the years and, and, mm -hmm. and get your take on it. You, you mentioned some of the fluidity of uh, the groundwork that you, mm -hmm. you were teaching, which is partly what you were very much known for. And, and from what I've heard, and please tell me if I'm wrong, part of the reason I'm, why I'm you were given the name. I'm fortunate enough to have been the person who stumbled on the foundation for what eventually became Power Moves. 
Okay. So how did so, yeah? How did that happen? Because that's the era, an era that we've. That, well, you know, it's funny because power moves. If you go by when I first did it, the first power move would be called would be considered called a whip backspin. There was a backspin before, but you only there was no way of getting centrifugal force. So I actually uh, over rotated. Uh, after no, I was trying to go into a, a chair freeze, and accidentally I went to I went on my back and I spun. But when my legs whipped and I balled up, caused a centrifugal force. That centrifugal force saved my ass because I was in a small hallway and I didn't want my feet to hit the walls. So I was just trying to protect myself. And my cousin was like he was like, "Oh shit, do that again." I was like, "Oh shit, what?" Right. You know, I didn't realize what I had done. I was just trying to protect myself from banging my head or my feet against the wall. And um, so that led to me practicing that. And then one day I did a backspin and I was going to try to come out into a chair freeze, over rotate it again, and went into my back again. Hmm. Then that was called the continuous backspin, which later became known as the windmill. Hmm. So, and that, that was in the 70s. So it's, it's weird because people think of power moves as a modern thing, but it, it actually started in the 70s. One of the, and I, I mean, I've, I'm a, a fan first and foremost, and, and I, I love seeing how a culture and this culture particularly progresses. Um, but one of the, you know, one of the things I've heard older heads almost gripe about is that there is a reliance on power moves now. Uh, as opposed to some of the fluidity and just dancing that that b-boying had, you know, where where it had come from. You mean older heads who feel irrele- irrelevant and could be, could be that. Yeah, yeah. Could I don't be listen that. to them because to me it's a lot of bullshit. You know, it, it's kind of like it's the same thing that DJs do these days. The older DJs are like, ah, that's not music. That's not music. Whatever. And I'm like, I'm thinking. When you first became a DJ, you were playing the new shit. And right. now you have a problem with the new shit. Every right. DJ starts off playing the new shit. Right. For the most part. Yeah. You know? Of course. Unless you're just like this old soul person, which is cool too. Because if you're a young person and you have appreciation for that music, and you can also, you know, you're also the voice of your generation as well, that's a great combination. Right. Me personally, I don't get into judging. I used to do it. I used to judge B-boys for... Uh, lack of uh, foundation because at the end of the day you still even as a DJ you need foundation in, ter- in terms of the technicality of it because you know what what makes dance a dance is a da- is the dance steps you know most power moves cannot be done rhythmically most people don't do it ryth- rhythmically you have to either go into them with a rhythm or come out of them with a rhythm yeah. You know, for the most part, there are other people who are super creative and know how to catch themselves and have an amazing amount of strength to be able to, at the drop of a dime, stop themselves on a beat, boom, do some sort of like trick move to the beat, and maybe go into another power move. But um, I think uh, I, I have a whole list of B boys and B girls who are super diverse in terms of like, not even just breaking, but doing all different styles of hip-hop dance mm. and some of them even do ballet mm. the right now we're at a point in, in within dance and hip-hop where you know you could do almost anything you want as long as it's within the essence of the soul of the music you know sometimes people get a little bit too acrobatic and kind of like forget it is a dance 
and I get that. Not, but that's also what what allows the dancers to be remembered uh, longer, right? Because it's like, yo, I not only saw what that person did, but I felt it. And when I was bopping my head, they was rocking, and mm-hmm. they had me rocking. But the thing is, when you're bopping your head, and a person messes up and really doesn't have a concept of the music, you're like. You get all thrown off and you kind of spaz out a little, and you're like, ah, God, you know, like what happened? Why, why did they stop rocking to the beat? So dope, but then you realize they're not a true dancer. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, you can have foundation and still not be a true dancer because at the end of the day, ultimately, it's the response to music. I, I wonder if that's, that could start with snapping your finger. Right. Yeah. You know. But I wonder if that's one of the reasons why you've remained so relevant and so in tune with the culture because for me hip-hop has always been about the fresh about what's next and you you seem to be always ahead of the curve or in stride with whatever generation is coming up behind yeah. you yeah i mean i think i, I like I, I love the arts and for me it's also about understanding the voice and power the voice and power is always going to be younger it's the majority you know, and right now the voice is amazing, man. They're also socially conscious on a larger scale than we used to be. We were more like want to be socially conscious based on the Young Lords and mm. the Black Panthers, which is more militant. Now you have people who are like straight up hip hop heads, but got some funk and soul and knowledge at the same time, like your real academic knowledge and know how. And, and passion to fight for shit. What happened in Puerto Rico was amazing. I flew down mm. there to protest, and it was mostly young people. And I was blown away. I was happy. It was peaceful. And, and um, it, it was that young generation that's listening to trap music or whatever, you know? And, and you know, the people around me, this one girl named Nina, Nina Cruz, who works with me, she's 26 years old, loves trap music. But she's an old soul too So it's like one of the dopest things I have around you And she's super intelligent And, and, and witty And her perspective is amazing So having that, that kind of voice around me Helps to steer me in the right direction And keeps me on a good path yeah, yeah, that is, it's symbiotic in that regard. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a two way yeah. street. Well, I don't like listening to old school angry dudes That shit is just annoying It's, it's like, bitter. yo, yeah, it's like my bitter. dude Maybe your creative well ran out Right or maybe you need an agent or a manager. Right. Um, you've, you've done a lot of work with uh, in the BC1 uh, Red Bull space. Um, uh, I've done some. You've done some. Yeah. Um, I mean, they always switch it up. They always give a lot of people opportunities for um, to judge and be involved in certain ways. Um, I don't think any one person has like the ultimate involvement. And I also understand that I play my lane. I'm, a, I'm part of Red Bull as what they call the Icon Program. I've been involved with Red Bull for 17 years now. Um, happy to say I'm the first person in dance ever signed to Red Bull. I'm the first person of color within any sport or anything to be signed to Red Bull. So um, I'm proud of my accomplishments with them, but also know when to step aside and just applaud the next people, you know, uh, uh, just at the forefront. Yeah, and I'm supportive to them. I I, I I mentor them sometimes, and and I welcome them with open arms. So it's all good. They they've helped to 
provide a platform to the space, mm-hmm. to the culture. I also think a lot about the World B-Boy Championships that were happening in Germany. Um, this is like the late 90s, I'm, I'm thinking. That's just a name. It wasn't really World. Okay. But it, but it, was, an oppo- it was an opportunity for... It, it's was it called World B-Boy Championships or was it called Battle of the Year? Battle of the Year. Yeah, yeah. you're right. I mean, Battle of the Year is just like... Freestyle session or rock steady anniversary and all that stuff. Everyone has their yeah, their you know battle of the year makes it seem like okay, this is the ultimate. But it yeah, was just it, another. It felt like the World a, Cup anyway. Right, looking but, in, you know that it was, that was cruise all, from everywhere. It was dope, cool, but it was all in a name, you know. Right. It wasn't like the the epitome of events. Right. Um, but during that time, it it seemed like there was a an, in part because of. You're resuscitating the culture in the early '90s. There seemed to be, by the late '90s, that that b-boy oh, yeah. b-girling was so, big in Korea, in India. This is what happened. Yeah. In the early '90s, I said to myself, "All right, there's there's still people dancing in Europe, and there's still people dancing in, in Asia. In the States, not so much." And Mr. Wiggles and myself, we did this uh, documentary called. Everybody Dance Now on PBS, part of our great performances. And first of all, we walked out after doing an interview. We're like, yo, we just said breakdance. We never said breakdance back in the days. Why the fuck we say breakdance? And we started researching ourselves and how that word came about. And then we started to remember. We're like, oh, shit. That shit doesn't even come from hip-hop. It came from my punk rock manager back in the days who, who misspoke at a, at a meeting one time. And we were laughing at her when she said it. That's so, how it came about. Yeah. It didn't come from hip-hop. So uh, it was from a British woman. Uh, so then, but were, I'm sorry, were B boys called? I mean, that was a term that folks used inside of the culture, or no? No, that, that started because of our manager. So the thing is that our manager was also a publicist. She used to work with the Sex Pistols and Malcolm McLaren and all that stuff. Sure. So she had the ability to get us press when she started managing us, and she also used to run the Roxy for that that night, that Wheels of Steel night mm. that became famous, mm. and. Um, since we didn't, we weren't doing our press releases or anything. We weren't referencing ourselves to these magazines before we met them. So she's putting that word out there, and all of a sudden, it's like people are calling it breakdancing. I mean, I, I, from, I, and I even caught myself saying breakdancing a couple of times, and you know, it was weird for me because I, it was like, like, yo, you rock, you break, you b boy, you b girl, that's it. That was it. Right. Oh, yo, it was going off and stuff like that. But not breakdance. Like in the seventies, the word breakdance did not exist at all. But be be boying, be boying, breaking, rocking. Yeah. But and were they called? Were folks called b boys because they danced? Because they danced on the break. Well, originally, yeah. Well, originally it was was Bronx boys and Bronx girls, Ah, and then it became break boys and break girls because we would dance on the break of the records. Okay. Um, So um, anyway, in the nineties, I ended up. You know, after Wiggles and I started to say, yo, we're gonna we're gonna just turn this shit back into calling it B boring and we're just gonna start doing like research and asking different legends about different perspectives and all this other stuff and create a timeline. So we created a timeline and which was constantly which constantly had to be uh, fixed up because a lot of people a lot of old school heads before us were kind of like giving us self serving stories, which is bullshit because to me it's like, yo, my dude you're dope no matter what. I'm asking you because what you did in my eyes is dope. You don't have to embellish. You know, you're still like that dude or that girl. So we had to deal with a lot of uh, 
fixing up of the timeline. And then um, in the 90s, I was at a point where I was saying, like, damn, DJs make mixtapes, and that shit keeps them alive. I'm going to make mixtapes of B-Boys. Mm-hmm. So I started making uh, VHS tapes. Uh, then, you know, my first batch started selling. And then I don't know how I came up on some money, but I had like five Gs and more than that. But I ended up taking five Gs and I spent five Gs on reproducing all these tapes that I had put together. And um, at my boy who used to work at Viacom, the reproduction center, we was straight up bootlegging right in there. We would get, you know, I paid him. I, I would give him a certain amount. Spent five G's. I made sixty off that five G's. So that—that's the, the, that's the yeah. financial part of it. Yeah. But the idea of it, you know, without an intention of making that much money, we didn't. I didn't know what the hell. Sure. It was just me alone, anyway. Yeah. But um. But it was to keep it. Yeah. So that was like okay. So the dude who's still breaking in Billings, Montana, or Bismarck, North Dakota, you know, West Bubblefuck can keep practicing because he sees, oh shit, these people are still practicing, they're still getting down, or there's like, somebody ha- has created a way to mass produce breaking. Mm-hmm. And, and that led to a lot of jealousy, but it also led to a lot of people making those tapes which started to spread around the world. So it was like a newsletter mm-hmm. of, of dance, ex- except it was all visual. And Did you, you call see. them anything, the tapes? Yeah, I, I create, because I don't, I, I knew what bootlegging was, and I, I even though I was bootlegging our own shit, but I knew there were certain things that I shouldn't have done. And thankfully, the statute of limitations is up on that. True. But um, I, uh, I, I created a fake company called Bootleg Betty. <laughs> that's dope. Because <laughs> that's what we used to call people who, like, you know, when you have snap fights back in the days, oh, your mother walked with a lip, they call her Bootleg Betty. <laughs> shit like that. Yeah. That's how it came out. No, that's fine. Um, of course, you know it's 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 2019 now, and you're still doing so many different things. Uh, you know, what are you? You're still dancing. I know. I know there there was an injury or something something like I, that. I, I'm currently injured, but I'm also uh, currently not really focused on my own personal dancing because at the end of the day, I'm 53. I mean, I've, I've you look like had, a young man, though, man. You still, you still look the same as when you're old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I've basically uh, had that's that kombucha. Yeah, so it does. <laughs> that's real. You have a napkin? Uh, we'll get you one. Yeah. Kombucha be fizzing up hard. So um, I, I, you know, last time I battled was in was in Houston a few months ago kind of injured myself have a little tear in my knee right now okay. it's getting better but I also got to a point where I mean, you know it's like one of those athletes who doesn't know when to quit you know or a boxer which is worse because you know if you, get, you injure yourself you yeah. get punch drunk right and um, I, I was I asked Red Bull if I could dance with the Red Bull BC1 All-Stars which is all young people it's all young people, and it was kind of one of those situations where it felt like, shit, man, this could be my last dance right here. Like, although I've retired several times from battling, this might be it. And I was effective. It was dope. Uh, I feel like I definitely could have done better because you're, you're always going to feel like that as an athlete. 
But I, I, after I battled, I was like, holy shit, I'm good. Like, I'm all right. I don't, I don't think I need to ever be concerned with the idea of a battle. Not to say that I won't ever. I just don't, I can't predict that. I don't, I'm, I have no interest in that right now. Uh, do I dance still? Yes. But um, I, my ride has been a good ride and, and, and I'm cool with that. I don't have anything to prove, uh, and you know, that's it. So what is? But what is? I mean, because you continue, obviously. So what is? What is next? What do you? What is next? I I, I enjoy doing my music festival in Puerto Rico. Um, I tell, it's yeah, called yeah. Puerto Rock Study. Mm-hmm. You know, for people out there, go find us on Instagram, Puerto Rock Study, and uh, that is something I do to uh, support economic development. Uh, reforestation, support farmers, uh, beach cleanups, uh, supporting education, things like that that I know were missing from my life that would have allowed me to have, as a, a young kid, a better sense of pride, uh, um, a better sense of, of legacy to appreciate from other people who, as Puerto Ricans, did great things outside of music and food and stuff like that. So... Although it's a music festival, we have a lead into the music festival that is about giving back and, and volunteer work and things like that. So the festival isn't just about everyone getting drunk and partying, but celebrating also the fact that, yo, you know, we came here to party our asses off. But the party is about celebrating because what we're doing is supporting a community of people that need it. So there's that, um, you know, I have... A deal currently with Red Bull that is a, a uh, three-project deal of Broadway play, a, a scripted feature film, and a documentary that we're going to be producing over the next few years. Uh, which, which probably, is about your life. Which, which is about uh, my life at Rocksteady from my perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I think with breaking coming up in the Olympics in uh, 2020, 2024 Paris Olympics, I think it'll be a, a, a nice lead-in to, to yeah, I didn't, know, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that it became. That's because you don't watch the news. Yeah, I guess I don't. <laughs> that's amazing, though. I know mm-hmm. folks have been kind of championing that for a while, but I didn't know that it became. I wasn't championing it, but other people have, and that's cool. Yeah. I mean, but to me, it's. Uh, I just hope they do the right thing. I. Um, well, yeah. Will you be involved? I don't, I don't have the slightest idea. Okay. But I can only hope that they have a program that is an ambassadorship program that is going to extend its hand to um, low-income families, um, you know, kids, at youth children, people who lack the resources to be able to have the ability to train or have access to places to train and, and, uh, and travel. Uh, also, they end up uh, you know, make sure, making sure that they're culturally sensitive and culturally respectful of the history and things like that. So those things are important. And ultimately, you know, whoever's in there as a competitor is going to bust that ass's training and their kids. The judging system has to be on point. The judging system as it is right now, I can't vouch for it. You know, I've used it before. And I get what they're trying to do, and it's not a bad place to start from, but it needs some major tweaking. And I hope over the next four years that they get to that point where, I mean, you got four years. Like, you know, 
it, I just hope the people who created who created it aren't holding it so close to their chest that you know they just want the props for creating it without any kind of uh, constructive criticism. Yeah. You know, to me, it's like, yo, this is bigger than us. You know, this is, and this is like, I'm not competing, so this isn't even about me. It's about making sure that that lane for those kids is as pure as possible for them. And when they get to that platform, which at the end of the day is just another platform. Um, I know people see the Olympics as this high-level platform, but, you know, when it comes to breaking, there are events like Red Bull BC1 Freestyle Session and all these other things around the world uh, that happen on a year-to-year basis that are what would be the equivalent of the NBA. It's like basketball is in the Olympics, but the Olympics is not and will never be the NBA. So let's not get it twisted. Let's continue to support real hip-hop events and, 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 you know, support the Olympics too. That'd be great. But don't get confused. It's dope, but all this other stuff is consistent and it is a for us, by us thing. Yeah, facts. Thank you, man. Um, where, where's the best place where people could be in tune with what you have going on uh, on the internet? PortoRockSteady.com. All right. And, you know, they can catch me on Instagram, CrazyLegsBX, and uh, PortoRockSteady Instagram as well. Oh, yo, man. Thank yep. you so much for Thank being you. in the bodega version of the Corner Store. Appreciate you. Well, Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.